That song we just sang was written by Thomas Dorsey, African-American hymn writer who is famous for some of his hymns, and that one we just sang was probably his most famous. And the story behind it involves quite a bit of pain. Dorsey had, had left to go to a, a revival to sing at, and while he was at the revival, he got a telegram that his wife had given birth to their first child. In the process of giving birth, she died. And as he rushed to go see the newborn baby, upon getting there hours later, the baby died. So he, filled with grief, took a pen and wrote the words of the song we just sang, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Help me to stand. That's how we come to Sunday morning, isn't it? Full of trials and weaknesses and asking the Lord, please take my hand. Help me to stand. And the way the Lord does that is by giving us his word. So Sunday mornings, these sermons that we do aren't just kind of prolonged platforms where one guy just kind of takes the center stage and just talks. Right, we believe the Sunday morning sermon to be the Lord's means to take our hands and to lead spiritual people like us home, to lead us on through trials and the hardships of life. And so every Sunday morning, Lord willing, when we gather together, we will spend the bulk of our time doing what we're about to do, opening up God's word and asking the Lord to help us to stand. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of First Timothy? And this morning, we'll continue our series through the book of 1 Timothy. So if you're new with us or haven't been with us in a while, that's basically what we do every Sunday morning. We open up a book of the Bible and we kind of work sequentially through it until the book is over. We think that's the most faithful way to to understand and to follow God's word. And so we've been at 1 Timothy over the last few weeks. And this morning, we find ourselves at 1 Timothy chapter 4. This morning, we'll look at the first five verses. So if you have a copy of God's word, would you follow along with me as I read? And you should leave the Bible open, all right? As I preach this sermon, don't close the Bible. Look at that Bible constantly. I'm going to try to aim you to look at it, right? Because you need to make sure that what I'm saying aren't my words, but are God's words, all right? And if you don't have a copy of your own Bible, feel free to take the one that's under the seats as a gift to you. First Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here's what I think is the main point, the main idea of these first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Rejecting what God created to be enjoyed is the pathway to spiritual apostasy, not purity. So beware. Rejecting what God created to be enjoyed 
is the pathway to spiritual apostasy, not purity. So beware. Or to put it another way, trying to earn a holy standing by cutting yourself off from things God made will only end up cutting you off from God. This morning, as we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts around uh, three points. Number one, beware of spiritual defection. We said that in kind of verse 1a. Number two, beware of spiritual deception. We see that in the latter half of verse 1 through the first half of verse 3. And number three, be free to enjoy God's gifts as an act of spiritual worship. We see that at the latter half of verse 3 through verse 5. So three points. Number one, beware of spiritual defection. Number two, beware of spiritual deception. And number three, I couldn't figure out how, a way to, how to match that one, right? You see the one doesn't fit the other one, right? Number three, be free to enjoy God's gifts as an act of spiritual worship. Number one, beware of spiritual defection. Look at verse 1 there. Paul begins here. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will defect, apostatize, leave the Christian faith. Now, why does Paul say this here in this location? That's always a good question to ask when you're reading the Bible. The words in this book are not just randomly thrown together or inserted. There's a flow to the text. The words are, are placed for a specific purpose. And so we always need to read scripture in context to understand the meaning. And in doing that, a helpful thing is to read the verses surrounding a given passage, the verses before or after a passage. And remember what Paul just said before these words here. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul ended with this great common confession of faith with which the church held about the person and the work of Christ. Uh, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's what Christians from the first century to the 21st century have all held. This exalted view of the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ. But from the heights of this hymn or common creed of what Christians believe about Jesus, Paul brings Timothy down to the depths of the reality that exists in Ephesus. Some will depart from that faith. And this is not Paul being an alarmist, just raising concerns without any sufficient reason. This is not Paul simply having a pessimistic perspective on life. 
you know, everything good, every good statement has to be balanced by several bad statements. Every positive given a counter negative. In fact, these aren't merely Paul's words or Paul's thoughts or Paul's outlook at all. Paul says this is what the spirit expressly says. The spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. We believe in a triune God, one God that eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We believe that because that's what the Bible teaches. We see hints and foreshadows of the triune nature of God in the Old Testament. Just think of the divine design of mankind in Genesis when when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We deduce that there is a plurality of persons in God, a point that becomes more explicit in the New Testament when God the Father sends God the Son into the world to save it. And when Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit into the world, once he ascends back into heaven, all three persons distinctly yet harmoniously working in the act of our redemption. Here we see that the Spirit is not a force at work, or something you feel, or something that you sense, or something that you catch. The Spirit, Paul says, speaks. It's what the scriptures tell us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we read that no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke as they were carried along from God by the Holy Spirit. Or in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, when is it that the Spirit said these things here? That in latter days, some will depart from the faith. We don't know for certain, but we know how the Spirit speaks. The Spirit speaks through Jesus, who in John chapter 3, verse 34, tells us he was full of the Spirit, without measure. Now think of the, the chapters in, in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, where, where Jesus instructs John what to say to the churches. And as John writes from Jesus over and over, what we read is, the Spirit says. When Jesus speaks, the Spirit speaks. And Jesus warned in several places, like Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 and 11, that the time would come when many would fall away and many false prophets would rise up and lead many astray. The Spirit was speaking through Jesus. But we also know the Spirit speaks through the apostles. These men who wrote the scriptures and whose spoken words are often recorded in the scriptures. And back in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders, he warns them in verses 29 and 30 that fierce wolves will come in among you, 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so Paul here, writing to Timothy in Ephesus, is redeclaring what the Spirit has already declared. That in later days, some will fall away, draw away, depart from the faith. These later days are now. In the New Testament, the reference to later days or latter days or the last days are are primarily a reference to the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. We are in the last or later days. So this defection from the faith isn't something that Paul warned was coming still sometime in the future. It's what was happening right now. I mean, remember what's happening in Ephesus. We read in chapter 1, verse 19, that some have made a shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul said, I have handed over to Satan. They have abandoned the faith. And it's not just them. Others are in danger. It's a constant present threat that Paul is aware of. If you have your Bibles open, look with me over to chapter 3. In giving elder qualifications, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, That an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Or turn over to chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And giving instructions about widows, Paul says, refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Four verses later in chapter 5 and verse 15, we learn that some younger women have already turned away. To follow Satan. This spiritual defection has already started. People abandoning the faith. And part of Paul's purpose here in writing to Timothy and the church is to warn them about it, but also to guard them from despair and from feeling defeated. This apostasy is not unexpected, it's not an uncontrollable phenomenon. This is what the Spirit said would happen and right now is happening. Nothing comes as a surprise or a shock to God. And Paul doesn't want Timothy or us to be surprised or shocked by this spiritual departure when it happens. But it should cause sadness. It should grieve us whenever we see people who were once followers of Christ turn away from following him. People who once fiercely claimed to be Christians were clinging tightly to the Christian faith, let go and walk away. 
and walk down the road of destruction. It's a sobering reality that many of us have seen play out in churches we belong to. People we once sat next to, sang with, evangelized with, no longer present, and no longer pursuing the Lord. It should never cause us to feel some sort of spiritual superiority that we're still here and they gone. Rather, it should drive us to sober self-reflection. Because it's not simply where we sit today that matters. What we say today that matters. What we confess today that matters. But will we still be here professing Christ living for him tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Will we persevere in the faith? Perseverance is the mark of true Christianity. We say in our statement of faith in Article 11 that we believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Many profess to know Christ, but their perseverance Endurance through trials and temptations, through theological threats and doubts, through tests of faith is the proof that they actually possess true faith in Christ and that Christ possesses them, that we are his. Those who depart, whether quickly or after some time, prove what for some may have seemed impossible that they never truly belonged to Jesus. Listen to how the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John puts it in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, regarding spiritual apostates. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that all are not of us. True Christians remain with Christ, remain with his people. When people depart from the faith, they only prove that their faith was a facade, was never genuine. True believers persevere because Christ preserves us. We need not live in fear that we might fall away from the faith. Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will by no means ever cast out. But you must come to him and you must stay in him. And one of the ways he keeps us in him is by passages like this, warning us of the reality that some will leave. And with the implicit command, don't let it be you. As we talked about last week. Another way that Jesus keeps us to himself is he gives us a spiritual family to help each other stay in the faith. 
The author of Hebrews instructs the church in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You you hear the duties of the church here? Take care of each other so that none of you grow an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to depart from the faith. And so to that end, exhort one another every day so that you might hold faith in Christ firm until the end. That's our duty as church members to help each other make it to the end. Let that duty drive your prayer life. Pray for other members. And if you don't have specifics to pray for, pray this, that they might not be led into temptation to fall away, but that the Lord would deliver them from evil. Use your words each day, as long as it is called today, to exhort and encourage other members to press on in faith to the end. If a passage of of Scripture encourages you in your quiet time, text it to another brother or sister to encourage them. If something in the sermon strengthens your faith, after service, share it with another brother and sister to encourage and strengthen their faith. Check in with your spiritual siblings when you don't see them here on Sundays. It could be something as simple as a common cold, that's keeping them away, or something more sinister, more deadly, a growing unbelief drawing them away from the Lord. Since you show you care, not by keeping out and minding your own business, but by butting in and making sure that as far as it depends on you, that nobody among us walks away from the Lord. And on the flip side of that, if you're not going to be here for a few Sundays, let somebody know so that we won't be unduly worried about you. Knocking down your door, calling calling you close to being apostate, right? (laughs) I love how many of you model that. I reached out to a sister this week uh, because I hadn't seen her in a while and and asked how she's doing and and, and where she's been. And uh, she said, I already told three sisters I was going to be gone for a few weeks. Chill out, right? That's fine. I was like, fine. Put me in my place. I love that, right? Uh, communicate what's going on so we won't be overly or unduly concerned. We want to be aware of the reality of spiritual defection and be vigilant in seeking to stop it. Because it often starts with seemingly small steps. Which leads us to our second point, beware of spiritual deception. Beware of spiritual deception. How do people depart from the faith? Well, it's not by randomly waking up one more morning and boldly declaring, I no longer believe in God. 
Now, abandoning Christ and the gospel happens as people adopt other messages and messengers. And Paul says at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, it happens as people devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, maybe verse 1 throws you off a little. People devoting themselves to spirits and teachings of demons. I mean, who does that? We even think that that kind of thing is primitive and far-fetched, a belief in demons and spirits, or that it's reserved for Satanists, to avowed devil worshipers. But you notice how often the Bible deals in the spiritual realm? Paul wrote in an earlier letter to the church in Ephesus, telling them we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are spiritually dark forces at work and at war with us to bring us down, to tear us away from Jesus. We need to be aware of that and aware that they don't just exist on Halloween or in horror movies. I don't know what your stance is on either of those. I'm not trying to make an absolute moral judgment on either. But just making a point that I think that sometimes we can swing hard against what we see as obvious threats to our faith, as clear-cut cases where the devil is at work, while giving ourselves wholeheartedly to more subtle, but just as damning demonic activity and teaching. The devil don't show up in a red suit and a pitchfork. He might show up in a black suit in a pulpit. He might show up behind a mic on a podcast. He might show up in the multiple posts streaming constantly down your social media feed. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons show up through people whose consciences are seared, whose hearts have grown hard. They know they're doing wrong. They know they're teaching wrong, but they don't care. They may appear outwardly to have some form of godliness, but inwardly they've left the Lord. And as people devote themselves to their teachings, they leave the Lord right along with them. Friends, devoting yourselves to the wrong things, to the wrong people can have disastrous effects. So consider this. Just because you don't read your Bible every day or don't pray every day doesn't mean you're not doing your daily devotions. You're still devoting your time and your attention and your body and your soul to something. Just not the Lord. What are you giving yourself to? What doctrines or teachings, what platforms or teachers? You might see them as seemingly harmless. But what is God's perspective? Are they actually heading you to hell? Small step 
after small step, click after click, post after post, listen after listen. Satan wants you to leave the Lord. And he will employ any instrument possible for that purpose. Here in Ephesus, it's false teachers. Liars, Paul calls them in verse 2. And what is it that they teach that is so wrong and so dangerous that is leading people away? You might expect it to be a message encouraging people to cast off all restraints, to live like they want to live freely and loosely. That's certainly one danger that can lead people astray. But the problem here is not with too loose a theology, but too tight a one. Paul says in verse 3 that these liars, false teachers, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I think we see here that the temptation to sin flows in two directions. One direction is to receive, take, enjoy what God has forbidden. So Eve sinned when she took and ate of the fruit that God prohibited. David sinned when he took and slept with a woman he couldn't have, another man's wife. But sin also flows in a second direction, a, a more subtle and seemingly respectable direction in forbidding what God has given to be received and enjoyed. Here, marriage and food. So doctrinal errors, right? Doctrinal error rears its ugly head, not just in a supposed liberal theology, but also an ultra-conservative one. Amen. Which one are you more prone to follow? Amen. Both are equally unbiblical and lead you away from God. Amen. In forbidding people to marry and to abstain from certain foods, these false teachers were attaching some spiritual purity to the ability to cut off certain fleshly desires. They thought that asceticism earned one access to a closer relationship with God. The problem was that their teachings were against the Bible's teachings. They were saying no to something God said yes to. I mean, marriage is God's idea. He made man and woman and brought them together in a one flesh union. A union that Paul says elsewhere was to be a picture of the gospel of the relationship between Christ and the church. Thus, later in this book, Paul encourages marriage. And yet there are teachers in Ephesus saying the exact opposite. Stay away from marriage. Their teaching probably stemmed from an unbiblical view that some in the early church held, that the body was evil and sinful, and the activities of the body, such as sex, were evil and to be avoided. And as sex, most naturally, and as God designed it, was reserved for marriage, they discouraged people from getting married. Celibacy was supposedly equated with purity, 
with greater holiness. Now, if you're observant, you might be thinking here, well, well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 that he too wished all people were single as he was because then they could devote themselves more fully to the Lord. Uh, so Paul is, is more in line here with these false teachers. But the difference there is not small. Paul wished, desired that people were single so that they could give undivided attention to the Lord. He did not demand that they be so. And he certainly didn't tie any inherent spiritual status to it. These teachers forbid marriage, would prevent people from engaging in it. And seemingly because they thought it elevated one spiritually. We see here how you can twist scripture in a way it was never meant to be used and to make the Bible say something that it never actually says. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Perhaps you're skeptical of Christianity. Maybe you think of Christians and the way Paul thinks of these false teachers in Ephesus as insincere liars, as hypocrites. And maybe you think that because while we say here with Paul that it's wrong to forbid marriage that God created to be received, that's exactly what many Christians are doing now, forbidding marriage, telling two people in love that they can't be married simply because they're of the same sex. But friend, in doing so, we're not seeking to be disingenuous but rather to be true to the definition of marriage as laid out in the Bible. Amen. In the Bible, God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. Amen. And so in rejecting or forbidding gay marriage, we're not forbidding something that God accepts. We're forbidding something that God has forbidden. Amen. But that certainly doesn't make us innocent. Because I do wonder if in practice and with our words, we, in essence, view marriage as some of these false teachers did, as something to be avoided. I mean, what is the one word description that many of us generally give when asked about marriage? Hard. Marriage is hard, man. And it is. And it can be. But do our words diminish that marriage is also happy, Amen. that it's a good gift from God? Amen. I'm not trying to say that we need to be unrealistic and say something that's not true. But I wonder if we've created a kind of built-in antenna that only detects things that are difficult and messy and disappointing in our marriages and misses all the joys and wonders and benefits and pleasures of it. And as a result, when we speak of our marriages, often all that ever comes out is complaining and pointing fingers rather than commendation and praise. And so the singles in our congregation and our children listening and looking on figure, why would I ever want to be in that? It's far better to be single. I wonder if some of us unaware are being used as instruments in the hands of the evil one 
preventing people from pursuing the gift of marriage that God designed to be received. If you're married, maybe spend some time with your spouse this evening talking about the good things in your marriage. Point out the evidences of God's grace over the last month, six months, six years, decade. And give God thanks for those. And share those thanks with others. The false teachers would have people refrain from marriage and would have people abstain from certain foods as well. They seem to have insisted on certain dietary laws. Is what we see in so many other New Testament letters. A sect within the church demanding that Christians not eat certain foods. In 1 Corinthians, it's food offered to idols. In Romans, it's meat. In Colossians, it's judgment that's being passed on people regarding food and drink. As if what one eats and drinks corrupts them. As if certain foods are intrinsically evil and must be avoided. Probably what few of these dietary demands was a misunderstanding and misapplication of the Old Testament law. Remember back in chapter one, Paul's brief characterization of some of these false teachers in Ephesus. He said in chapter one, verse seven, that they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They don't know what they're talking about. Yes, the Old Testament law had restrictions on what the people of Israel could eat and could not eat. And these teachers seem to have been teaching the same kind of restrictions to Christians in the church without realizing the massive distinctions. The law was given under the old covenant and to a people who were under the old covenant, the people of Israel. But all those dietary laws and restrictions found in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the person of Christ. And by his death and resurrection, he has inaugurated a new and a better covenant. And those of us in this new covenant who repented of sin and believed in Jesus are no longer obligated to keep any of those old covenant restrictions. Christ kept them for us fulfilled all the law and all the purity that the law pointed to. We don't become pure or holy by keeping away from food and marriage. We are holy as we cling to Christ, as we are united to and abide in him. His righteousness and his holiness become our righteousness and our holiness when we put our faith in him. You see why this false teaching is so dangerous, so deadly? It disregards the work of Christ. It puts something else up as a way to attain and maintain a holy standing with God. Your efforts, something you must do, or in this case, must not do. Don't eat this food, these foods. Don't touch this man or woman. As a matter of fact, don't even get married at all. If you want to be truly spiritual, if you want to be really righteous, but it's none of our work that gains us a righteous standing before God. 
only Christ. He lived perfectly. He gave his life for us. He took our sins and he imputed to us his righteousness through faith. He died in our place and rose from the grave so that we might be declared righteous. A declaration not based at all on our sacrifice of foods and marriages, of us giving something up, but based totally on his sacrifice of him giving his life up for us. He gave his life that we might be redeemed and reclaimed as God's holy people. Any teaching that teaches otherwise is demonic and deceptive, leading you away from Christ and therefore must be denied. And how must this teaching be denied? Not merely by doctrinal debate, but by delighting in God's good gifts. Which brings us to our last point. Point number three, be free to enjoy God's gifts as an act of worship, as an act of spiritual worship. A counter to these false teachers' restrictions of marriage and foods, Paul argues a wide reception of them. In the latter half of verse three, we see he says that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth by Christians. When you know that Christ is your only means of righteousness, of godliness, it transforms your view of the world. Created things aren't seen as impediments to your spiritual growth to be avoided. They aren't seen as helps to your spiritual growth to be idolized and abused. Rather, you can rightly view them in their proper function as gifts to be received and enjoyed with thankful hearts. You see how that is? I mean, when you have a misunderstanding of what actually makes you righteous, you easily operate off some some kind of law-based ritual or routine. When you feel guilty of your sin, you can lean on your works to justify you. I don't drink. I don't eat meat. I don't take medicine. I'm pure. Or at least you tell yourself that. Your denial of certain created things becomes a spiritual crutch. Or you can lean in the opposite direction. Abuse created things to make them act as if partaking of them gives you more godliness, more godly power. Think of how the Roman Catholics view the elements of communion. The bread becomes the body of Christ. The wine becomes the blood of Christ. So that partaking of them has some sort of mystical power. There is a real power in communion. Christ's presence is really there, but not in the elements. Or maybe you've seen these infomercials on TV late at night advertising some holy or miracle water that you can have for only $19.99. As if it has some sort of inherent power to make you closer to God or more spiritually cleansed. No, only Christ can do that. And he has done that by his death, burial, and resurrection for you. When you believe that, you can see created things not as evil or as idols, but as gifts 
Created by God to be enjoyed. Given to us to be received, Paul says. And these things are good. Good gifts from God. Because they come from God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There's nothing inherently sinful, evil, with anything God made. On the contrary, because God has made it, it is inherently good. Why? Because God is good. His very essence, his very nature is good. David says in Psalm chapter 119, verse 68, Lord, you are good and you do good. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So how dare any of us reject anything from God as bad and to be avoided? Paul's statement that everything created by God is good might draw your mind to the passage of Scripture we read earlier from Genesis 1. Did you catch the repeated refrain as we went through that passage? God creates something, and he looks back on his creation and declares it was good. After every day, it was good. And then after the six days, at the end of everything that God created, he looks back in Genesis 1.31, he saw everything that he had made, and he said, behold, it was very good. Sounds a lot like Paul here, doesn't it? Everything created by God is good. And so marriage is a good thing. Because marriage is a God thing. He made it. In fact, in Genesis 2, we see the one time in the creation narrative when God says something is not good. Namely, that man should be alone. And so he creates a wife for Adam. Eve, to to be a woman suitable for him. Why is marriage good? Marriage is one of the contexts in which God provides deep companionship. Marriage is one of the the, the contexts in which God conforms us more and more to the image of his son. In marriage, you see your sin super clearly. You see your need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God super clearly. Marriage is the one and only context in which God created sex to be enjoyed. Christians are not anti-sex. Christians are very pro-sex within the confines that God created. Young people, I hope you hear that. Because we don't want you only hearing from us, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. Now, our message more fully is don't disobey God and devalue the good gift of sex and diminish the beauty and joy of sharing it with a future spouse by engaging in sexual sin before marriage. We're not trying to keep you from something fun, but to keep you from something fatal, deadly to your soul, sexual sin, and to keep you for something wonderful, enjoying sex in the marriage that God made for it to be enjoyed in. Or even as it relates to foods. God created foods. All foods. 
And so there's nothing inherently wrong with eating and enjoying all kinds of foods. You know, some people place some sort of superior value in being vegetarians. Because before the fall, before sin entered into the world, all that was eaten were plants and fruits. So only plants are good to eat. Only fruits are good to eat, some say. Yes, plants and fruits are good to eat because they're created by God and therefore good. But you don't get from the Bible that they're the only thing that one should eat. Because after the fall, when sin entered into the world, and after the flood, when God judged the sin in the world by killing everyone but Noah and his family, what does God say to Noah in instituting a kind of new creation, a new beginning? In Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Everything, Paul says, created by God is good. God made it and God gave it. And so it's good for us to have and to receive. Later, Jesus declared himself all foods to be clean. A point reiterated to Peter on his rooftop vision in Acts chapter 10, when he saw all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and a voice from heaven commanded him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter like, ugh, ain't eating that. I'm naked, never taking anything unclean. But the voice of God spoke to him a second time and said what God has made clean. Do not call common or unclean. So we can sit down and enjoy bacon and pork chops and sushi. You don't have to. I'll take yours. You're free to abstain. But don't do so out of some false guilt or some unbiblical notion that eating these things makes you unclean or unholy. The Muslims are wrong. The Jews are wrong. All right? There's no food that makes you unclean. Christ has made you clean and has made all things clean to you. We can receive all God's gifts then with thanksgiving, with grateful hearts. For, for Paul says in verse 5, they are made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's not that they take on some special significance of holiness but rather enjoying them becomes an act of worship. We get married and we enjoy the, the physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy in a marriage because marriage has been set apart by God as a way to honor him. The word of God declares that marriage is good. And when we get married and we enjoy our wives and our husbands, we declare God's word to be true. We eat all kinds of foods, not of acts of gluttony or overindulgence. That is sin, but as acts of worship. We, so, we show that by not only receiving food into our mouths, but receiving it as from God. And so before we open our mouths to put food in, we open our mouths to push words out. 
offering prayer to God. Prayers of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for all these things that come from your hand. You have given them to me to sustain me and to strengthen me and to satisfy me. Thank you for your love and for your care for me. Shown in just giving me daily bread. Thank you, Lord, for your extravagant grace. You don't simply give me food to survive, but to enjoy. Food with different tastes and textures and, and smells. Lord, if food is this good, how much better are you who give it? You see how enjoying what God gives is actually an enjoyment of God? Enjoying the gift is to lift our eyes and hearts to the giver in praise. And so rejecting the gifts as evil is an insult to the giver. Leads us not into a closer relationship with God, but further from him. Asceticism can be a slow and seemingly imperceptible drift from God. What starts off as not indulging in certain things in the name of worshiping God ends in a too sad reality that you're not worshiping God at all. The answer is to look to the scriptures to define what's good and what's not. And to enjoy all that God has given us to enjoy that we might rightly praise him, worship him in all of life. So we can eat and drink, marry and make love in marriage, dance and do art, sing and play sports, paint and do poetry, do whatever it is we do, Paul says, to the glory of God. Every aspect of our lives has the potential to honor or dishonor the Lord. And it comes down to how we use God's gifts. Christianity. It's not about playing keep away from all things, but clinging to Christ and enjoying all things he's given us to enjoy for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gifts. We thank you chiefly for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood so that we might have eternal life. But Lord, we thank you that you've given us all things in and through him. Lord, things that can cheer our souls and make us happy, things to enjoy because we don't look at them as steps to earn our salvation. But Lord, we look at them as gifts from the hands of our Heavenly Father who loves us. Help us to enjoy you, Lord, and give praise to you as we enjoy you. Keep us from falling away from you. Hold us fast, we pray, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to see everything is from your hand and good for your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.